I need to start asking for applause when I introduce Justin. Ah, sweet. So we'll be in Romans again. If you want to turn to Romans 14. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. It's page 949 on that Bible. On my Bible, it's 1207. So before we jump into Romans, I just want to reflect on a couple things Jesus said right before he was arrested, and in doing so, catch his heart for the unity and the love that he wanted in his church as he was leaving earth. Um, The first statement he says um, to his disciples as a commandment in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, 
if you have love for one another. And then a couple chapters later, he's praying. So this is between him and God. So he's praying and he says, I pray for these, my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is us, which is pretty cool, the church, that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I wanted to just start with that because this isn't some niche thing that Paul is dealing with. This is something that Jesus really cared about, the unity and the love within his body. He commanded love. He prayed for unity. And it's through this love and this unity that he said the world will understand that we are God's people, that for the love that we have for each other within the church. So with that thought about, let's, uh, let's look at Romans 14. I'm going to read a few verses, starting in verse 13, and then we'll pray. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's pray. Lord, we just um, come before you and your word as students, and we desire to listen to what you have to say, and I pray that you would speak through your word and through me to everyone here, Lord, that You'd give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and even changed lives as a result of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Ball mason jar. Okay, so in the Roman church to whom Paul was writing this letter, there was a lot of converts. The whole church... The whole church is made up of all sorts of different types of people. There were probably, likely, Jewish Christians who were saved out of strict religious backgrounds and customs of keeping dietary laws, of not eating kosher, sorry, of eating only kosher meat, of keeping track and celebrating Jewish feasts and holidays. But then, alongside them, there was other converts who couldn't care less about all that stuff, who were just glad that they were saved, and they're like, all right, I can do whatever. It's great. But there was probably also pagan Christians who were saved out of pagan practices and who had a history of kind of some raunchy stuff and therefore may have wanted nothing to do with with those practices. So Paul here 
and we're right in the middle of his argument, where he's trying to get these two sets of believers to coexist amicably with the end goal, as we see in verse 19, of mutual building each other up. But even more so, we'll see next week with the end goal in chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, to glorify God together in unity. So he offers some advice to both sides. So he starts out with therefore, and junior high, I learned to ask the question. Come on. What's it there for? Yes. So whenever we come across that, we have to make sure and know what he was talking about. So he says, therefore, what was he just talking about? We talked about it last week. And if we go back to verse 1, let's, let's find out what he has said so far. So, briefly, he has said in verse 1, Welcome one another, welcome the weak person in faith among you, but not to quarrel over opinions. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about opinions or doubtful things or things that two Christians with an equal desire to live biblically can come to different um, conclusions based on their history or based on who knows what. But they're not, they're not part of the gospel. They're not part of a creed. These are things that are, quote, non-essential. And John Stott, he's a theologian, um, and he said of these things, quote, we must not elevate non-essentials, especially issues of custom and ceremony, to the level of the essential and make them tests of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. I think that that phrase, conditions of fellowship, is a key there. That we are to welcome each other, not welcome each other into fellowship in Christ and not um, base it on opinions or quarreling over opinions. So what else has he been saying? He's been differentiating between the weak and the strong. In verse 2, he says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And I'm glad my father-in-law isn't here because he would have been offended. No, he's a vegetarian. Um, and then verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So he's talking about weak and the strong. And this guy, John Stott, says that in every church there are weak believers and there are strong believers the strong understand spiritual truth and practice it without qualms in themselves or their conscience but the weak have not yet grown into that level of maturity and liberty and I just want to touch on this because there's another there's a couple different ways of thinking about this so here we have weak in faith strong in faith and Paul gives us a couple other ways of thinking about it in the book of Corinthians. He's writing to the Corinthian church answering a question that they had, which was, what do we do with meat that's offered to idols? Like, how are we, are we not supposed to eat it? Can we eat it? What about these people who say it's terrible to eat and these people who say that's fine? And Paul simply says, idols have no real existence. There's no God but one. Therefore, you can eat it. However, he says, not all possess this knowledge, but some eat food as really offered to an idol. 
and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So in this differentiation between weak and strong, we can also think of it as the weak having a lack of knowledge about what they can eat and their fr- and freedom. They're, they have a lack of knowledge um, that goes against sort of their freedom in Christ. And then we can also think of it as a weak conscience in general. Um, and before moving on, I just want to say it's, it's reasonable to assume that this word Paul uses, weak in faith, it's, it's not a good, I mean, it's not an ideal thing for someone to be weak in faith. Now, he's dealing with the weak in faith very graciously, and he's pretty much talking to the strong, pretty much our whole passage today. But I think it's safe to assume that it's not an ideal thing. And we'll see in our passage today that the goal is not only for peace and unity between the strong and the weak, but it's to build each other up, which means ideally and and hopefully that the, the weak would be strengthened. And then the last thing he's been talking about is not passing judgment on each other um, for the rest of the first half of the chapter. And that's, that's kind of where we're going to pick up. And he says in, in verse 3, he says, Do not despise the one who abstains and do not pass judgment on the one who eats. And he goes the rest of the way to verse 12 explaining why. So he says, verse 3, God has welcomed him. Verse 4, you are not the master of your brother or sister, God is. So why are you interfering in that relationship? Verse 5 and 6, each person in this, in this situation can glorify God with what they're doing. Verse 5, it says, each person should be fully convinced and then go ahead and do it or not do it to the honor of God and in thanksgiving. And then lastly, verse 10 we are all going to stand before Jesus at the end. So why judge our brothers? So we'll pick up in verse 13. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So Paul is moving above and beyond here. Like Justin said last week, he started off in verse 1 through 12 kind of with the regular, obvious, common sense rules of the household, like attitudes, but he's moving into the grace rules, which are actions. And um, I feel like if we just read verses 1 through 12, we could be like, okay, you're strong, you can do it, I'm not supposed to pass judgment on you. You're weak. You can't. I'm not supposed to despise you. So let's just go our separate ways and our attitudes will be good because we're not, we're not even together. We're just going our separate ways. But no, he, he goes into how the strong can treat the weak in love and how each part, each party can love each other. So he opens here and he says, let us So he's talking to both parties here. He's saying, weak and the strong, let us not pass judgment on each other any longer. But then he says, decide never to put a stumbling block. So he seems to move forward in putting the onus of responsibility in these these situations on the strong. 
He says, since you're a family, your brothers, your sisters, since you are siblings in Christ, you're not, we're not going to get away from each other anytime soon. Just like our immediate family, from the age of zero to 18, you can't get away from them. <laughs> the, it, the correlation is, is a good one, that in the family of God, we're together. We're in this. And it's not, we're not, you know, we're not going to get away from each other, which is, which is great. But it's, it can be hard. Um, but since you're siblings, you're not to just tolerate each other in attitude. You are to decide to love each other by not putting a stumbling block or obstacle in their way. And this word decide, I thought it really cool and interesting that it's the same word for judge. So he's basically saying, you know, don't judge each other. Judge this about yourself. Are you putting anything in your brother's way? Are you putting a stumbling block or a a hindrance? And that word stumbling block, actually both of those words, stumbling block and hindrance, are the same words Paul quotes from Isaiah about Jesus. It's just this funny correlation. But he says, and he quotes in chapter 9, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So without getting into specific areas of how we can stumble each other yet, um, I just want to kind of consider this idea that Jesus is supposed to be the interruption. He's supposed to be the peop- or sorry, he is supposed to be the thing that people come to and go, oh, didn't know that was there. What should I do? He's supposed to be the great interruption, commercial break in our regularly scheduled program. If people are walking, doing their thing, he's the one w- that we want to interrupt their life. Not, not, not us, not what we do. So as siblings in Christ, we want to help our brothers and sisters toward Christ, not hinder them on their way to Christ. So he goes forward and he gets personal with where he stands. He says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So he places himself with the, with the strong here. He's, he's in their camp. He says, I know. My conscience, totally clear. I can do all this stuff. And then he says, he even goes further. He's not just you know, saying, this is my opinion that everything's good. But he's like, I'm persuaded that in Christ, everything's fine. Every, nothing is unclean. So he, he puts his own opinion, and then he says, well, the facts are also on my side. And this word unclean, we should mention, because he's not, you know, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about, um, well, this word means it's common. It's the word for common, and it's the same word God says when he tells Peter in a vision, what I have made clean do not call common. And he's, he's, he's got this tray of 
unclean and clean animals. And God's like, yeah, kill it. Have a snack. And Peter's like, no, I've never, I've never done that. I've never, nothing unclean has entered my body. And God's like, don't call unclean what I call clean. And that's the same word. So Paul here is convinced and says that through Christ and what he has done, we now have the freedom to worship him without ritual. And there's nothing that precludes us from worshiping and honoring Jesus, provided we are able to do them, like he says in verse 6, in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to God. So this here, you know, before we get to the but, is what can be called the principle of faith, or the principle of freedom. That in Christ, you're free. You can, you're no longer bound by any law or ritual or custom that you must keep in order to feel close to God. There's nothing, you know, that comes between you and Jesus. But we do get to this but, and it's, it's kind of the main, it's the conflict in this whole, this whole story. It's, you know, it's the conflict, and then we'll get to the climax and resolution and drama class. Um, He says, but, It is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So he's like, this is where it gets a little messy. This is where it's not a one hit, one shot. This is the way to go. There is is this tension that can happen. He's basically saying another Christian's conscience matters. It should matter to you. And we get a little glimpse of how this could happen. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So we see that people can have a history. And that's a huge, that's, that matters. And it's kind of cool. God cares about your history. He cares about what you've been through, what you've been exposed to, what you've come out of. And he cares enough to challenge all of us to care as well what we've, what we've come in contact with in our life. I was having a hard time coming up with a great illustration. Um, I was going to talk about how I can't watch The Bachelor because there's just too much hot tub scenes and some people can, but I was just like, that's such a, Dumb illustration. Um, but thankfully, uh, at home group, a great illustration came up. Um, Aaron, our own Aaron, um, told a story of how when she was in Bible college in Marietta, California, she, at the time, was super into yoga. And it was a, as a form of exercise, just awesome, and enjoyed Candles and incense as well. And God ordained her roommate that year to be um, someone who had recently become a Christian, so was a new Christian, and who had grown up with her mom teaching her that yoga was the only way you could heal your body, as well as using burning incense and burning sage to bless their house and cast out evil spirits 
um, to cleanse their house of evil spirits. That's like a real-life version of this butt. Because Aaron's just doing yoga. It's fun. It's fine. But she's faced with this situation. And obviously God was probably teaching her a lesson as well as wanting something good to happen there. So what happened? Well, one day her roommate was asking her, about how she does yoga, like, you chant, like, how do you, like, you know, are you doing, like, talking to these certain things, and she's like, no, I just do it for exercise, it's fun, and, but, you know, in that conversation, her roommate was expressing confusion, she's a new Christian, think of that, you grow up your whole life with yoga as a sort of God, and you become a Christian, and then your Christian friend's doing yoga. So you're just like, mind blown and confused. But in that conversation, Aaron was able to probe deeper to listen to her story. And after that, made the decision to give up yoga and incense for the time that she had her as a roommate. Awesome. But then for exercise, Aaron invited her to, do, to run with her as switch things up, partner together. What can we do? And they ended up bonding significantly over this. And Aaron, I think, was thankful for the chance to love, you know, a new believer in that way. I was like, whoa, that's gold. <laughs> so how do we as Christians reconcile the fact that there are things that we can do, but those very same things may be things that other Christians aren't able to do or even observe you doing in good conscience. So this is where the principle of faith that we just learned about is challenged. So if we move forward to verse 15, he says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So this is where the principle of faith is trumped by the principle of love or the law of love. Not only does your conscience need to interrupt what you do, we should also be interrupted by the consciences of others. John Stott says about these two principles, he says, Faith instructs our consciences. Love respects the consciences of others. Faith gives liberty. Love limits its exercise. So this conflict of consciences, conflicting crickets, is an opportunity for a partnership. We just learned that Paul is in the, the camp of the strong. And, you know, he's, he is persuaded that nothing is unclean. But the cool thing is he illustrates this concept of law, the law of love trumping the principle of faith in his ministry. Because the chapter after he talked to the, first, or the Corinthians about these things, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he says, 
To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So how do we know? When we, how do we know when we can partner, when, when there's an opportunity for, for partnering with a weak or strong person in faith? Well, we have to get to know them. We have to listen and be humble enough to be open to it. And he kind of gets a little nitty-gritty here with what can happen when someone of, of strong in faith compromises someone weak in faith. He provides some perspective. He kind of throws down the, the Jesus card here, and it gets kind of intense. So what's going on in this seemingly small action of eating? And does it end with eating? So he says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, he says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We find in verse 21 that it doesn't stop with eating. Eating isn't some special thing here. He says in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So we find that Everything is included here. <clears throat> so what's happening? What, if, if the sh- what's happening in, in the, the bad realm before we get to, like, the good realm? Well, he says, if your brother is grieved. Now, this word grieved, it also can be said to be in heaviness. It's, this isn't um, the, the 21st century American Christian legalist who is offended and who just wants you to stop because, ah, you shouldn't do it. It's, this is like an intense thing. This is someone who, who is under a heavy burden of, of sadness. They've been thrown for a loop. They're totally distracted. There's a, there's a force that was let in that is going to keep them from Christ. And just like we saw with Aaron's roommate, her reaction wasn't, oh, I'm offended. No, it was like, I, I, I'm all introspective. Like, I'm just kind of distracted. I'm confused. I don't know what to do with this. And so we have to be sensitive to our brothers and sisters who might be grieved by what we do. We have to take care. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, take care lest this right of yours become a stumbling block to the weak. So after being grieved, in verse 21, they could then stumble, which means to be induced to sin. There's an opportunity for them to do something that their conscience says they shouldn't do. Maybe they say, well, I know I trust this person. They're, they're a, a strong Christian. And, hey, I should be able to do this. Shouldn't I? I mean, because of Jesus. But Paul answers that in verse 23. He says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And this word doubts kind of has that similar tone. It's, it's wavering. It's kind of being 
at variance within yourself. God doesn't want you to have to get all introspective on everything. He wants us to live in the spirit. He wants us to be walking by faith in the spirit and not having to to bring our eyes and and kind of take as um that guy who wrote the bitterness booklet i can show you guys jim wilson said introspection is it's like taking a flickering torch down into the dungeons of your heart and trying to like figure out did something go wrong here no God wants us to live in the light. He wants us to be free in Christ. And sometimes that means obeying our conscience. I mean, it always means obeying our conscience. But it, if you feel you shouldn't partake in something, you shouldn't force it. Keep, it. keep in step with the Spirit and abstain. Like he said in verse 6, abstain in, in honor of the Lord. It's great. You can be thankful for that. A good rule of thumb is if it distracts you from God, don't bother. It's not worth it. And if you're, if you're in the strong category, it's not worth it to lead another of your siblings toward being distracted. And he goes on in verse 15, do not destroy the one who... So first, they're grieved. They could be stumbled to sin. And if they keep... They keep enjoying maybe this freedom that they should have. They could end up doing some serious harm to themselves. <laughs> so as a member of, a, of, a str- of the strong in faith, we have some power. We have, you know, we can do some damage. We can also do some good. But right here he's saying, do not destroy this person. Now he's not referring to eternal damnation. Because Jesus is clear in Matthew ten twenty eight that only God can carry that sort of power. But it seems to be more in opposition to building up. So we are taking an active role if we stumble our brothers and sisters in damaging this person's spiritual growth. In verse 20, he also says, don't destroy, which is interesting but it's, it's a different word. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. But this word is a little more specific than this word, this other word. And it, it's more along the lines of to tear down, to kind of throw down and dissolve kind of a building that was there. So we have the power both to, dis- to damage someone's spiritual growth as well as this bigger picture of the work of God that God has been building in this person and in the church. It's pretty intense. And who are we? Who is being destroyed here? He says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then the the stomachs of the strong just went, boom. Paul's like, is it worth it? He draws attention to Jesus' attitude towards all of us. Because Jesus... Gave up everything. He died for this person, for all of us. And like Paul says to the Philippian church in in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul's challenging us. He's saying, is our goal to be right? Or is it to be like Jesus? Because Jesus gave up everything. So can you give up a small freedom for a time? For the sake of your brother? And he moves on in verse 16. He says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So it seems like he kind of takes a break from his intensity and he's like, hey, this is what you can do. This is what you should be doing with your freedoms. This is how you can protect them. And he, he moves on with this thought in, in um, verse 22, we can read. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So he kind of takes a break and he says, hey, hey, you know, your freedom is good. It's a good thing. It's great. You should be thankful for it. You should enjoy it. But if you're using it nonchalantly, without care, despite their destructive consequences to a fellow believer, then they're rightly going to be spoken of as evil. Your freedom will be spoken of as evil. And he says, don't let it happen. Don't protect it from selfishness. Enjoy it in honor of the Lord, not in honor of yourself. And then verse 22, he he seems to be getting at a sense in which God wants us, you know, to to be free to partake in what we feel free to partake in, but not at the expense of another person's faith. It's like he wants us to, on some occasions, if necessary, keep it to ourselves. So he goes on in verse 17, widening this, this lens of perspective. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You know, this is kind of like Justin said last week. He said, you know, because Jesus died, you can have a beer. But he didn't die so that you could have a beer. That'd be stupid. That's just not, the comparison isn't a good one. You can almost hear Paul laughing. He's like, eating and drinking compared to eternal joy and peace doesn't compute. Yeah, it's, (laughs) he's like, come on. These activities, although for many they're good, They're not the main event. They don't come close. The kingdom of God, he says, starts with being made righteous in Christ. And then it proceeds to bestow a peace found only in trusting Jesus. And finally, it fills the Christian to overflowing with a joy that is abundant He says a similar thing in in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, Since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So he's just like, okay, just go back a second and think about what's, what's actually important. When we look at other believers, we can never say, ah, oh, I just don't have a lot in common with that guy. I mean, he thinks doing that is a sin. I can't, can't really relate to him and don't know what to do with him. He, I can't, you know, enjoy this thing. Paul's saying that as a Christian, when you have Jesus in common, you have everything that matters in common. There is always something that two Christians can do together because of what we just read. And he says, when we, when we do this, when we put others first, when we recognize that the important thing is our fellowship in Christ, he says, whoever does this is acceptable to God and approved by men. This word acceptable is the same word we read in chapter 12, verses 1, verse 1, and it's kind of the same word for an acceptable sacrifice, like it's a good-smelling aroma to God when we are able to put our brothers and sisters first, and it's approved by men, and that kind of reminds me of what Jesus said that we read at the beginning when he said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for each other. Love isn't going to get old anytime soon. It's People generally approve it. So that's a plus. So then he kind of culminates his, his practical advice in verse 19. He, here we have finally a positive command. What to do. And he says, let us. So he's, he's bringing them back in. He's bringing the weak back in. He's bringing the strong in. And he's saying, so then. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So he's like, all right, here's what both sides got to do. Pursue. That word means to seek after earnestly and eagerly. It's an active thing to endeavor to acquire. We're not just to not do things that offend. Or we're not just to not judge, not despise we're to do stuff. We're supposed to get to work. And that means getting to work with people that you might disagree in, on things with. Do things that promote peace and build each other up. That both unify and edify. Like, like Aaron was able to do and we can do when we disagree is find something that everyone can do. And with two Christians, it shouldn't be super hard. Pray. Read the Bible together. And if that's boring, play catch. And if you're not athletic, you can play a board game. But the key is to know each other, to pursue relationship actively and earnestly with each other because we have so much in common relative to what we don't have in common. It's just way more important. What we do have in common is peace, joy, fellowship with each other through Christ. That's amazing. Some of my closest friendships nowadays are because of that, not because of we're on the same t-ball team, you know. 
It's because of Jesus and doing stuff together through him. And I disagree on certain things with those people, but relative to Jesus, posh. He wants both the weak and the strong to be built up. He says mutual upbuilding. He, he wants the strong to grow in love and the weak to grow in faith. And the strong can help the weak grow in faith by treating them with love. That's the, that's the bridge. And I recognize this is a difficult thing to figure out a lot of the time. And this passage can be ripped and, and twisted a little bit. But I appreciate what Paul said in verse 17, that all of this is in the Spirit. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to invoke this type of response in us as we enjoy community with each other. Let's pray.